Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose, which is basically a madhouse, so no different from any other week, really. Uh, it, it appears to be family night. We've just waved bye-bye to Mummy Heather, uh, who took one look at this bunch of reprobates and ran away. Um, Heather, you literally landed back, what, 12 hours ago? How much? Wait. I'm not awake yet. And I'm wrecked. I, I feel like I'm scared to even be in a virtual pub right now. In case someone comes near me with alcohol, it's been a big week, big week at the Great War Group Conference. I think pretty much everyone was there who's in this room, except James, because James decided he had a family wedding to go to and didn't come and get drunk with us. James, <laughs> yeah, it was really nice. It was also in a very nice historical place. So I got to geek out at all the motorsport history as well and just got to enjoy cake and drink as well. So I was there at the conference in spirit, just getting drunk somewhere else. Are you at Bewley? Uh, no, it was um, Burst Morton Court, something like that. I love it. There's just like, he doesn't actually remember. So it can't have been that good. Weren't having that much fun, were you? <laughs> oh, no, I was. <laughs> I just couldn't remember the exact name. Excellent. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna... Go on. I was just going to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, a lot of my stuff is 20th century, and even I'm not convinced there's such a thing as motorsport history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like stuff that happened last week and then the Nazis, right? There's, there's reading the paper, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the burns have started, uh, seeing as he's chundered on. Lockie, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, liver is still healing. Uh, I'm helping it with um, some beer, actually. Some I, very I love lovely... that you ran away from the drinking in Maidenhead at the conference to run away and start drinking somewhere else the same yeah, I urgently had to get to the rugby club um, where I was presented with my team's award for um, winning a league, a, a COVID interrupted league. And um, you, yeah, you so I'm the president of the RFU. No, I didn't, but I pretty much just turned up, got up, got out of the car, um, taken off the t-shirt that I was wearing that morning, stuck on a club polo. So I was still in shorts and flip-flops to receive this award, which is very much the ethos of my particular team. The third team at Blackie is a very chilled uh, affair. Excellent. Uh, 
Who else have we got? Clive is Clive's done that blurry background thing, and it, it just makes me think I'm still drunk. Clive, how are you doing? I got the blurry front ground thing with the streaming cold, which I probably picked up in Maidenhead. This I didn't good. get drunk in Maidenhead, so it's all bad news, really. Uh, this is good because I don't care how many of you have got snotty faces because none of you have COVID and that's all I care about is that we were not massive super spreaders. <laughs> we don't have one COVID case from the conference. So hurrah. Did you enjoy your first Great War conference, Clive? I had a wonderful time. It was nice to meet lots of very strange people. <laughs> no, because you're not exact. I mean, you were there for the history hack, weren't you? Because there were 13 yeah. of us in one place. I was there because I felt intimidated and I would have been bullied if I hadn't been there. Yes, well, you would have. This is true. Uh, there was one moment when I was drawing my little kitchener thing on the back bar on the Thursday, I think, and or the Friday, and I could suddenly hear, like, Zach talking behind me and Heather and Nikolai all in the same room, and it was a complete and total mindfuck. So it was like, and this isn't Zoom. They're actually in the room with me. It was mental. And, Charlie, you participated as well. I did. I was surprised to find out that everyone in the pub has legs <laughs> and general body forms and not just sort of disembodied heads floating in cyberspace. So Yeah, it was slightly bizarre being faced with the fact that Zach is a real person. Yeah. After all of that time. It was like, oh, my God, he's real and he's taller than me. He looks so small on my screen. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met so many people surprised that I'm tall. Before. No, it's in the name on Twitter, right? Yeah, it's not. I, I don't do things cryptically on. Yeah, <laughs> on big Twitter. Andy Locke. He really is big, isn't he? Well, yeah. It's in the name, yeah. Charlie. Tell everybody how you contributed as a non-World War One person. Uh, you have fully been adopted by all of them. Tell everyone why. Um, yeah, it's it's all it's it's my trick. This is what I do. If I want to make people like me, I bring them cake and feed them cake. This so was not just made, any cake, though, was it? Yeah, we made a World War One trench battle scene. I say we because I, I take no credit. I just baked it. It was Chris's design. So he, he designed it and I made it. But the funniest thing was he actually got stitch Nazi'd on it. He it, did, didn't he? he what was it? He it painted the plane. It yes, was so good. So yeah. the plane, by the time the tank was operational... The plane had been out of service for, I mean, we're talking like if it was 12 or 18 months, you know, it's a, it was a smallish amount of time, but it was so perfect. And I said to the, the very knowledgeable gentleman who told me, cause I thought it was brilliant. I said, please go and tell my husband over there. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, we were there to learn. So it was fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, and you learned that there is nowhere, nowhere you can go in military history without finding one of those lovely people. There's nowhere safe, but I love those people. So Yeah, that's, I mean, we basically set up a weekend for them to hang out with each other, didn't they? <laughs> but I'm, I mean, everyone ate the cake anyway, but you did have to take it out of everybody's view to cut it up. Otherwise, they would have been heartbroken. I know, but that's the fun of making these cakes is the smashing it up and eating it. That's, it's yeah. got to be done. <laughs> I think before there was one awful moment where Peter Hart thought he was going to have to do his usual flapping around like a fish out of water uh, routine whilst avoiding the cake. And he was like, I am going to land the cake. The cake needs to move. And I was like, don't worry, the cake will be being cut up while you're giving your talk, PT. Uh, we also have with us Zach, who is a real person. I am. I'm an actual human being. Who'd have thought it? Actually a First World War person now, sort of a little bit as well. 
Mm, sort of a little bit, not exactly or entirely or remotely. Um, I know who Haig was. Yeah, but that was basically just mocking World War One stuff. No, it was you mocking yourself. It was when you said, why would you be listening to me give you instructions on how to write for this magazine when I look like I'm four years old? That was it. That <laughs> yeah. was it. <laughs> it's only funny because it's true. Yeah, Dak worked very, very, very hard at the conference. Then uh, we realised we might be killing him, so we made him sit down. Uh, somebody else who had a memorable conference because we may have embarrassed the living shit out of him. Chris! Hello. But it's emba- it was embarrassing in a good way. Yeah, tell everyone what we did to you. Um, we, we, we celebrated my uh, belated 40th birthday. Even though you should have done 41st, considering you Poured a lot of alcohol in me and pointed me towards karaoke. Yes, we did, but wearing an actual replica, nailed on replica of a German Admiral's help, uh, hat, which yeah, you're wearing. Yeah, yeah I'm saving it. And now Sophie's wearing it because Sophie is with us today as well. Hello, Sophie. Hi. You have your own pitch tonight, don't you? Yep. Yep. I think everyone is pretty much resigned to the fact that you're going to win, including your dad, uh, because you are, in fact, the smartest person in the room, which is depressing for the rest of us. Probably because you're the only sober person in the room, apart from Clive, and he's kind of got a cold. But take the win. (laughs) Take the win. I think you're going to walk this. Right. Okay. Zach, you're going to judge me, aren't you? I'm asking Zach when he's got a mouthful of food and Zach's so nice. He's like, I couldn't possibly speak with my mouthful. She said. He's and actually- the other hand, have no problems doing it. Yeah, he's actually finishing his mouthful. I had to resort to the non-alcoholic GNT to be able to speak to you. But yeah, I'm judging. We're doing warry type stuff. Um, so, yeah, I was expecting more people to turn up and do napoleonic shizzle. Where is Princess? Was, um, busy yes. doing other things. Passing up, obsessing over it's his... Halloween door. event, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what he gave you, as his excuse. What could you possibly mean by that, James? Uh, either that or obsessing over a golden retriever, yawn. Uh, but, yeah, rarely does Princess miss the chance to come and bore the tits off us with some uh, military history because it is military isn't it we're doing the most pointless battle in history is that right Zach it is although some of the contenders that people put forward I looked at and thought "Mm, is that really pointless so we might find me being mean and disqualifying people excellent I've got the power you have got I'm going to give you even more power now partly because I'm on a level with you now people I have no capacity for holding any of you in check tonight run riot but I also have no capacity for editing you afterwards. So whatever you say is going out. So just bear that in mind because I literally can't be asked. Zach, do you want to pick people and do the order like Holmes did last time? Because that was quite fun. I'm going to give you All even right, more you. power. Who would you like to hear from first? Let's why, hang on, why is Clive wearing a skeleton balaclava? That's really creepy. <laughs> That's actually is, it, is it Halloween? Is he being being scary for Halloween? Clive could never be scary. He's too lovable. I must admit, it's not working if you're trying to scare us, Clive. <laughs> Sophie's just laughing at you. Glasses either. <laughs> the nine-year-old yeah. in the room is just mocking you. Yeah. Oh, should I put on my really annoying, annoying uh, hat that I got? Oh, yeah. 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 To go home with the most obnoxious souvenir she could find in London, and she indeed found one. Uh, we will screenshot it for the viewers. Zach, who would you like to hear from first? Let's hear from Sophie, first of all. 
basically um, getting the, the, the one that's going to win out the way first, that everybody can just kind of <laughs> breathe and, and then we can all enjoy the night. Don't you want to string her out so she's very drunk at the end and stumbles? <laughs> <her? laughs> <laughs> the saddest thing next to a battle lost is a battle won. Wellington. Wellington uh, after Waterloo. 600,000 casualties. Battles are pointless. What difference do, does it have to do, does it make to society? Those that do matter kill thousands and thousands of men who could have lived a long and happy life. For example, the Battle of Britain killed 27,000 in, in three months. If the Germans invaded, I'd be talking in German. In South Africa, the Battle of Belmont, it made no difference to the world. In that morning, 158 men were killed. Another example is Boudicca's Rebellion, where... She defeated a Roman army in, in battle, then sacked sister, but then... Is were... Sophie trying to read your handwriting? Yeah, yeah. it's real bad. <laughs> she dictated to me and I wrote it on the back of an envelope for her. I did write some of it, it's but really, then you took really over because I, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't use that pen. Okay, right, it's all uh, falling apart, isn't it? Yeah. But then were brutally murdered in the next battle. What difference did it make? Even the battle's dad keeps going on about at the Falklands and Cornell made no difference to the, to the war. In conclusion, the average person gets up, goes to work and pays taxes. The only people war and battles make a difference to is the rich white man in charge. Wow. Okay, that's laying down a marker. All of you that have sat there and done all of your prep this week, uh, it was for nothing because Sophie's just told you you're all pointless. Zach? She's wiped the floor with everyone already, isn't she? Um, I don't know if Dad <laughs> told you to start with a Wellington quote, but way to go to get me on side as a Napoleonic slash Wellington nerd. Got some lovely stats in there, 60,000 killed at Waterloo. Uh, and I don't know about other folks, but I thought you were much more confident this time, Sophie. This was like you in, I've got this mode, apart from when your dad's handwriting kind of ruined things for you. Um, but we'll just blame that on him um, because yes. we're mean. Um, I've only got one question, really, which is, you know, sometimes you're, you've got somebody who's a massive bully and you've tried to reason with them. You've tried being nice to them. You've even tried giving them what they want. And they're still itching for a fight. What should we do in situations like that? Because you could say that sometimes when you're faced with someone like that, you've got to fight them. But then wouldn't you just tell someone else and then they might deal with it? I like and this. if that doesn't happen, then you probably just call the police. Get somebody else to deal with them. Although Lockie, Lockie is suggesting says chin them. <laughs> Lockie, I think you shrugged when Sophie said that things like Coronel and Falklands made no difference to the war. You didn't agree, did you? Well, no. I think kind of all the kind of naval element. Um, that's a that's a big part of 
building kind of material force to to win a, a war in which you know you for the first time in history you've got multiple enemies putting millions of men into the field 365 days a year um for, for some years at a time and that kind of control of the waterways is a big part of um how the how the allies and you, you actually kind of you you look at britain's wars through history i mean i know i'm getting a bit british focused on this but um i think there's only one war in britain's history where we haven't built a major naval coalition and eventually gone on to win and that was the american war of independence and look how that went um, so actually, yeah, I think the naval element does matter. It makes a big difference to Britain anyway. When you're a little island, winning battles at sea helps. Von's Bay was not attacked to anyone, though. <laughs> Did she just diss Von Spey in front of her dad? That's not going to go down well. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst her dad sat there in a, in a replica of Von Spey's hat. Of course it's not going to go well. <laughs> Excellent. Right, okay. Oh, okay. I have a feeling that that's quite a high benchmark for people to read, uh, to reach. Sorry. God, I'm so tired. Uh, Kit's in the house. Kit's just joined us. Hello. Where are you now? Germany? I'm in Hamburg in Germany, yeah. How much beer have you drunk today? Um, I didn't realise that it came in litres, not pints. So, <laughs> I can't wait. so are, we getting, are we getting belligerent drunk, Kit, tonight? I'm stone cold sober. No, I'm fine. I'm I'm tempted to go out and get a beer just so you can have a belligerent drunken rant on your hands. Yeah, do it, do it, do it, do it. Right, Zach, who do you want to go for next? Uh, tricky one. Shall we go to James next? Okay, then. So, Zach, hopefully you'll like this one because I've gone for the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, just a bit of background about the battle. It was... During the well, it was meant to be part of the War of eighteen twelve between America and Britain. No side had really gained an advantage during this war, and at the time, negotiations for the Treaty of Ghent was going on. Now, realistically, the negotiations had finished; the treaty had been signed, but Britain still had, I think, it was about three invasion forces on the way: one for New Orleans and Louisiana, the other to strike down from. New York, and I believe the third one was for Maine. Now, Maine had been captured. Uh, the New York expedition had failed from memory, and we had the last one in Louisiana. So the leader of the British forces was Sir Edward Packenham, is it, if I remember my pronunciation correctly, mm -hmm. uh, Wellington's brother-in-law. And he landed with his troops, about 8,000 of them, and they went to attack New Orleans. Now, the Americans, led by Andrew Jackson, had had prior warning of this, and they managed to basically build up their defences around New Orleans and absolutely kick the arse out of the British. And all this time, the peace treaty was coming across the ocean to just be ratified by the United States. Now, some people argue that New Orleans, despite happening Technically, after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed, if Britain had won, we'd have kept New Orleans and Louisiana, as Britain didn't recognise the Louisiana purchase made uh, from, the, from the, uh, the Americans gaining Louisiana from the French. However, this is a key point. During the treaty negotiations, both sides had to drop their demands. 
Lord Liverpool actually had to tell Castlereagh that, listen, I've spoken with Wellington here and Wellington had basically said we had no right to make demands as we'd not made any gains in the war at this point. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but Wellington had basically told Liverpool straight. So Britain dropped their demands. America dropped their demands. No one had really won the war. The treaty had been signed. Now, Liverpool made these demands to Castlereagh because he knew the war was not popular. I mean, it was popular in the media, but he knew that in the port cities such as Liverpool and Bristol, they were really suffering from the trade, the lack of trade with the USA. And at the same time, the war taxation had gone on long enough. And with unsatisfactory treaty negotiations currently on in Vienna, it was really getting a big problem, especially as Europe and France could potentially go to war again. So even if Britain had won the Battle of New Orleans, they wouldn't have been able to hold Louisiana because the Americans would have ratified the treaty, which states it was the pre-1811 borders which meant Louisiana would have to be given back. And if America didn't ratify it, Britain couldn't afford to stay at war or keep Louisiana. It would have been too much of a drain on resources, troops, very expensive, something Britain couldn't afford at the time. So this argument that Britain would have kept Louisiana is a load of hogwash. So to me, the Battle of New Orleans is pointless, and it basically all it did was made the Americans think they won the War of 1812, it made Andrew Jackson, I think, eventually president of the United States from memory. And he's not going to say the battle was pointless when asked. So really, it was such a pointless war. It was a, for a war that was already over, a war that was a stalemate, and it didn't really change anything. Um, that's my argument. Uh, I like it. I, I'm thinking anything that ends up with Andrew Jackson having any power whatsoever is bad, because we've learned on another down the pub that he was a complete shithead, right? Zach, what do you make of this one? I'm not convinced this one qualifies. And the reason I'm not convinced this one qualifies, well, before I get to that, the first thing, the thing that you were talking about in terms of trade, I'm not sure I buy that entirely because trade has been an issue ever since Napoleon starts instigating the continental blockade, which as folks, folks will know, having been bored to death by me about this, is the start of the end in terms of things unraveling for him. So the ports have been suffering just from the war they're war weary full stop i don't think it's bespoke to the war of 1812 it's just that once the war of 1812 starts then you shut off the american ports as well as others um so i don't entirely buy that element um but in terms of does this qualify the dates matter here um, and i'm trying to drag this from the back of my memory and i'm struggling the treaty is signed but has pacnam already set sail by that point because if Pakenham has received his orders before the treaty is signed, you've, this is an age where you haven't got instant communications. So the news has got to catch up with him for him to then make a decision on whether or not to cancel that assault. And if he persists with that, then it's a pointless battle. But I don't think that's the case. Um, I actually can add to this in that he, while he had set sail, negotiations were ongoing and he'd basically been told secretly that even if he'd heard rumours of peace, he was still to attack anyway. So he was basically told to ignore peace and attack anyway. Um, That's not quite wasn't... the same thing, though, is it? That's ignore rumours of peace. He's going to be in America, 
And from a kind of tactical perspective, you would spread rumours of peace in order to kind of reduce the, the impetus to an attack and reduce the inclination and spread discord amongst your enemy. So, yeah, but, my, but my argument was that even if he'd won the battle and he, he thought he could keep Louisiana, the reality of the situation, he couldn't. The argument I was making about trade here was that, like you said, they're war-weary by this point, especially the ports. They couldn't afford a war to continue. It, the government couldn't afford a war to continue in that regard. The public was especially war-weary of the lack of trade overall and also the war taxation at this point. So even if we'd have won Louisiana, we wouldn't have kept it because you'd try and be in, abiding by the Treaty of Ghent. And even if they could try and hold on to it, it just continued the war, a war we couldn't afford to win. So in many ways, the Battle of New Orleans was pointless because it didn't matter if Britain won. It didn't matter if American won. The result would have been the same. Mm, and that I was think, my point about it. I think you've got the cart before the horse here, um, if I'm honest, mm. um, because the whole point of taking somewhere like New Orleans, yes, I, I hear your argument about post-Ghent, um, there is an agreement. And so if you take it, well, you've got to give it straight back anyway with you on that. But the point is that Pakenham is sent out with the intention of taking New Orleans so that it can be used as a bargaining chip. That's That's been British policy way back before this point. This is what they're doing at the start of the Revolutionary War, seizing Sugar Islands uh, and using them as bargaining chips in peace negotiations. So I'm afraid I, I don't buy the argument on this one, James. Good effort and valiant to, to come at me on my Napoleonic nerdery, um, but I'm, I'm not sold on it, I'm afraid. Good show, though. Good. That's brave, James, going at Zach with Napoleon nerdery because uh, <clears throat> we all know he is the consummate Napoleon nerd um, and the king of the Napoleon nerds because Princess isn't here and he can't say otherwise. Right. OK. Beth is in the house. Hey, Beth. Hello. It's just a flyby for you. You've got to go and be an adult and spend time with your husband, haven't you? Yeah, he's leaving me for three weeks to go to Scotland. So <laughs> he says this as if she and I won't be in Belgium in Ypres this in this time next week. Yeah, probably in the Ariane doing gin and tonics, having oh, gone. No. We're back in Ypres. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I literally. So we have to go and make some videos, don't we? Uh, well, Beth, we yes, do videos, and I can just see it now. If it's tipping with rain and typical Flanders mud, the videos will be her just reveling in rolling around on the floor, going, "I don't care, I'm back, I'm back. This is awesome." You're basically describe describing my dream at the moment. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't wait. Chocolate, wine, Belgium, Canada. Yeah. Anyway, she's not doing a pitch. She's just here to say hi. So, hi, Beth. Hi. Zach, <clears throat> so Zach, you've had James try and go at you with Napoleon nerdery. Where do you want to go next? Let's go for not Napoleonic nerdery, shall we? Because I know somebody else is, is doing Napoleonic-y shiz. I do love um, that Kit took no convincing whatsoever. He switched his camera off and got out to find beer. I love it. Shall we go to Chris next for some boaty action? What makes you think Chris is going to do boats? I don't know. It's just a, a gut inkling. <laughs> I'm just going to take it to the kitchen where there are less children. Hang on. So just to prove that the German Navy can do everything better than anyone at any time, they've also got one of the greatest screw-ups in history. 
Um, so during the Great War, the Kaiser's Navy carried out offensive operations against the British Royal Navy in the North Sea, whilst maintaining a protective minefield to stop the British from chasing them home and carrying out similar operations against German ports. When World War II started, they thought, well, it worked so well last time. Now let's do that again. And so they put a huge minefield across the North Sea uh, with clear paths for their ships uh, to go through, which they regularly swept, although by the beginning of 1940, because it had been a really crap winter, they'd not really done that. Um, so on the 22nd of February 1946, destroyers began Operation Vikinger, a proposed sweep of the British fishing vessels on the Dogger Bank. Careful, Clive. Uh, it was proposed that um, they would advance to the gap called the Western Rampart under protection of Luftwaffe fighters, whilst two bomber squadrons carried out an attack of their own against uh, shipping on the bank. The task force led uh, by Fritz Berger um, moved up to the, uh, aboard the Friedrich Eckholt uh, with ships in line astern, arrived um, quite early in the evening at night and um, started to head up through the darkness when they thought it'd be safe to move. A quarter past seven that night, an aircraft was spotted buzzing the formation. It dived down to 1,000 feet and along the line of destroyers. So um, Berger ordered the speed to be cut down to reduce weight so it would be harder to spot. The aircraft came by a couple of times and uh, one of the destroyers thought, well, this has to be British. So they fired on it. And um, everyone kept keep trying to spot this aircraft. And they weren't quite sure if it was there or not. Then someone aboard the Max Schultz reported, no, 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 it's, don't worry, it's one of ours. And that's when they realised that it might be... Um, they might have a problem and all the, and the anti-aircraft gunners started firing at them. So it was then um, at quarter to eight, the Liebrich mass at the rear of the rear reported, I can spot the aircraft. You can see it in the moon, in the moonlight. One minute later, two bombs struck, struck the, uh, the mass and she signaled for help. The lead destroyer turned round, ordered the other destroyers to stay away. But as the Eckhold approached, they thought, no, it doesn't look too bad. Oh, dear God, as she exploded and split in two and sank. Immediately, rumour went around that there was, a submarine, there was a submarine in the area. At four minutes past eight, there was an explosion um, somewhere off in the darkness. And uh, Beitzen spotted uh, thought it'd seen another bombing run. At some point near around that time, the rival uh, was, went to investigate the explosion, saw a and it's um, the radio ops picked up a submarine so they charged it dropped two depth charges on it didn't get out of the way in time the depth charges went off under the destroyer which shorted all the electricity including the electrically controlled um, rudder sending the destroyer to sail round and round in a circle another crew another destroyer moved up and started trying to pick people out up from the mass the um command um they called for all ships to go and assist as best they could but the rumors of submarines kept going up coming around and around and people kept spotting periscopes and tracks in the water and they thought and the lead command uh, the formation commander gave the order to scatter this meant that the poor girl, all the poor sods from the mass in the water weren't picked up uh of the colner one of the they had a boat tied to the deck um to pick survivors up they said well we got to move cut the rope they did cut the rope um, on one end, the other end was tied to the propeller guard and that boat with survivors and one crewman was cut apart by the propeller. Uh, they then got sending out radio messages saying, all right, everyone sound off, tell us if you're alive or not, which obviously didn't, they didn't, they still weren't getting replies from everyone. 
Uh, the corner then goes back to where it thought the mass was. Uh, and then they spot a conning tower in the distance. So they charge it. And the captain says, I oh, know we're going to ram it. We're going to sink this British submarine. And they go full pelt into the wreck of the mass. Only to find that the other one that they, the other wreck they'd seen had been the second one that had blown up. They uh, managed to get one extra survivor out, but in total, 600 German sailors were killed in this uh, action. Hitler was furious and demanded to know what the hell was going on. So they had a uh, an report of inquiry. Um, and it turned out that even though they had booked fighter cover from the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe hadn't turned up. Also, the fighter formations hadn't told the bomber formations what was going on. And one lone German bomber on its way to bomb... Um, British shipping had found British shipping and went on a on a on an attack run. They had found out they had found out that they were going to be in the area, but they couldn't signal the bomber because the radio codes weren't right. And even if they had signaled them, the bomber pilots wouldn't have been able to flash recognition signals because the recognition signals they had were wrong. And also because the German ships had fired at them, they said that it was fine. They caught they during the interrogation. I did have the quote, but I suddenly can't find it with nerves. It said um, that they said to the uh, navigation officer, so this ship you dropped bombs on, it was a merchant ship. Yes. You're sure of that? Yeah, it had like superstructure and everything. Right. Okay. And have you ever identified a merchant ship at nighttime? No, sir. This was the first time ever. (laughs) Dope. And... Just a, I, I know it's questionable as to whether this is a battle or not. So I'm going to refer to you to the ultimate, ultimate um, brain on this. Wikipedia actually lists this as a battle and has the uh, Germans, German strength and German losses. And on the British column, it says no, um, no forces present. No one died. Uh, also, I forgot to mention that the Schultz, the second one, in its circle out to look for submarines and to scatter from the air attack, went over one of their own mines and sank, uh, killing everybody aboard. So it also fits quite ni- nicely into the history hack. This is really quite funny if all those people hadn't died. Yeah, we even have a mug that says that for sale now, don't we? Uh, yes. Zach, he's already preempted you with the this isn't a battle by bringing the Wikipedia. He has. <laughs> The trouble is, because I've never heard of this, it's boaty stuff and it's not my wheelhouse. Um, so I went you're to saying is, unlike James, he's not going to take a pounding, right? Uh, well, <laughs> I've I resorted to Wikipedia myself whilst I was talking, <laughs> um, trying to work out, was this just a friendly fire incident? And I don't know if we're just looking at different Wikipedia sites, um, but I'm not seeing a column for the British and it's describing the cause as a friendly fire incident. Um, you see, so I'm, I left I'm coming Sophie at you with my own Wikipedia research. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm, I'm going to blame Sophie because I mentioned this this morning and she said, oh, right, Wikipedia and anyone can edit that, right? So it looks like my daughter may have got on Wikipedia and changed it. Damn, she's <laughs> undermined. <laughs> Look, I have a hat, so it means I must be right. <laughs> he does have a German admiral's hat. He also has a child that's smarter than him that isn't even at secondary school yet. It's terrifying. But hilarious. Uh, so, Zach, are you not buying it? I, I'm not really. It's a deeply impressive cock-up and it's vintage yeah. history hack. Um, but it's it's a friendly fire incident. Um, I think he, he had it in a nutshell with the kit quote. You know, yeah, it would have been funny if, if those 600 people hadn't died. But I'm looking for something kind of more impressive, more kind of futile, rather than just some people 
being really shit at their jobs. Which again is yeah, fair enough. Hack, isn't it? <laughs> He's like, fair enough, whatever. I've got it out of the way. I can now mute myself and put fun. unruly children to bed without worrying about whether I'm getting on everyone's nerves. Uh, we'll see you in a bit, Chris. Yeah. Kit's back. Kit, what beer did you go for? I have got some X, which oh. is not usually what the beer I would go for, but it was bloody cheap. It was uh, 50, um, 50 cents, 50 euro cents, whatever, for a, a can of like a pint can so Lockie's face from, right now it's, no it's from it's from Bremen just up the road isn't it it's not it's not from far away at all so yeah it's, you, you, it's, you, like, you, it's local it's from Bremen yeah so local beer it, maybe it's like Tetley's maybe it does it, it travels you know badly or something excellent oh, it will get yeah. me pissed though indeed Zach I'm sitting here getting pissed on the non-alcoholic gin so best not to bring any beer near me how are you um, feeling about these non-alcoholic cocktails we sent you? I I was won over by the Bellini. Bellini, yeah. That thing. Um, that was really nice. So I went back to the, the gin and tonic. And I think it, this is weird, but I think it's better if you don't stick ice in them, which Lockie will look at me like I'm a heathen now for suggesting that. Um, but they are you get more of a taste out of them if you don't have the ice, which... Just doesn't this seem right. This is podcast but... gold, Zach. Keep going, yeah. mate. <laughs> no, it, that's a common misconception. What you actually need is lots of ice. Yes. Okay, because ice, as we're finding out with the polar ice caps and everything, lots of ice keeps ice cold and keeps it in solid form. Whereas if you just put a few bits of ice in, they'll melt and you get a watery drink. Okay? That's why when people stand at the bar going, I want less ice in my drink, you're like, all right, Bellin, whatever you say. Yep. Thumbs up. Yep. Right, we, uh, that, literally we got, has a cat's asshole in her face right now. It's quite funny. <laughs> also, we've got too many scientists in the room for me to start talking thermodynamics, so I'm going to withdraw immediately. Yeah, retreat, retreat. Go on, Zach. Let's go to Heather, mainly because of the asshole that's in her face. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I did the War of Jenkins' Ear. Um, this was basically a conflict between Britain and Spain, which lasted from about 1739 to 1748. Technically, it, it is a war, but the battle it refers to was just literally a battle. Um, it took place primarily in the Caribbean, and um, the Jenkins in our story is Robert Jenkins, who, who was a captain of a British merchant ship. The Spanish Coast Guard boarded his ship to search for contraband and ended up, for some reason, cutting off the man's ear. They don't give a reason of why they ended up cutting off his ear, so... Use your imagination as far as I'm concerned. I could think of some great stuff, but his ears cut off. So it, nobody really did much about it at the time. It's just like, oh, poor guy, his ears got cut off. Anyway, so about that weather. Um, seven years later, though, um, Britain was looking for an excuse to start war with Spain, and they paraded the man shriveled ear out in front of Parliament as well as Jenkins himself. I really would like to know why exactly they kept the ear. I mean, it's going to be gross after a while, but they did it. So um, opposing politicians and the British South Sea Company decided this was a perfect excuse to kick off war with Spain. Um, the goal was to improve British trade opportunities in the Caribbean and to make sure that Spain honors their asiento contract which allowed British slave traders to sell slaves in Spanish America. Um, 
there was a lot involved in this, but to make a long story short, the result wasn't really great for Britain. They ended up with only over 30,000 dead, an unknown number wounded, and 407 ships lost to Spain's 4,500 dead, 5,000 wounded, and 186 ships lost. Um, British territorial, territorial and economic ambitions in the Caribbean, Caribbean, excuse me, I know it sounds like I'm drunk, but I'm not, had been repelled while Spain successfully defended its possessions. So British smuggling was ended. Uh, three Spanish treasure convoys were sent to Europe successfully during the war and afterwards, and Britain had to renounce its claims to the Asiento um, compromise in exchange for a payment of 100 grand. So the whole reason for doing this pretty much made them pay extra money and didn't have any of the results they wanted. Thanks, Heather. Uh, I was ignorant about it. I knew of the war, but didn't really know anything about it. So I've just done that really professional thing of looking up on Wikipedia. So I can confirm the figures that you, you just stated to us. Um, they are correct because we can all believe Wikipedia, um, totally. obviously. Unless um, Sophie's been at it again. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, um, the, the obvious issue here is, is it a war rather than a battle? Yeah. Um, which, you know, so let's stick that one to one side because that's, that's an obvious one. In terms of the, the point was to kind of stoke up. Yes, okay, there were strategic gains, but there was also a point here about kind of stoking up resentment within Britain against the Spanish, right? Do you think that they succeeded in, in that to a degree? Um, to a degree, yeah. Um, in the end, though, basically, Britain and Spain got along a little bit better afterwards. But it just went to hell again later on. So, And is there any kind of specific aspect of this, this war, where, particular actions, where you look at them and just go that was incredibly stupid because the, the losses, there's a big disparity here, 30,000 British, so 4,500 Spanish. So what causes that massively uneven uh, death toll? Um, the fact that even though Spain wasn't really prepared for the war, when they did get prepared and everything came together, they just, Britain was just on the wrong foot the entire time. Yeah, I, I like this one, uh, not least because it kind of kicks down that Royal Britannia. Britain's always been amazing um, at naval-y stuff thing, which Charlie will agree with from her um, Anglo-Dutch war knowledge. The only issue I have with this one is war rather than battle, but this is a contender. Thanks, Heather. Kit says it was fucking ridiculous to attack. Why, Kit? Um, so I was just in Cartagena. Um, and Cartagena, for those people who haven't visited is basically a city on a, a spit, and it is guarded by a giant fortress. Um, and outside of Europe and the Star Forts, this was the most formidable fortress in the world. Uh, to get anywhere near Cartagena, the British had to sail within range of it. The other thing about Cartagena is you're fighting in 31 degrees all year round, and it's surrounded by a giant swamp. So everybody gets disease. And in fact, one of the big uh, attritional factors in the War of Jenkins' Ear um, and this attack on Cartagena was the British tried it three times, the attacks, and each time they were just decimated by disease. So it is very, very hard to attack. It was the worst possible location to attack 
And although in the war they had initial success um, in, um, in, the, in the West Indies, um, as soon as they got onto, um, onto the, Spanish main, uh, the, uh, the Spanish main, they did not stand a chance. Can I just say, if this one wins, Kit gets to take a share of the glory. Because, nice job, Kit. Um, who's in charge, is my only question. Who, who's the cretin who decides that storming Cartagena is a, a good idea? Um, it was Admiral, I'm trying to remember his name now. Um, it was an admiral. Um, uh, and I'm pretty certain he dies in Cartagena of dysentery or something horrible like that while he's off the coast. It wasn't actually part of England's plan. It was sort of done. It was Vernon, Edward Vernon. And um, he kind of did it on his own initiative. Um, and he did survive, but he, he died pretty shortly afterward. Brilliant. OK, thank you. I've got no further questions. Do you want me to just jump to the next person? Go for it. Yep. Um, Beth, you're not doing one tonight, are you? Nope. Okay, doke then. But you I'm... don't get to hear my my winning pitch this evening. It's not good enough. <laughs> Just putting I'm like supposed to steal your pitch if you haven't got one, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> you broke her kit. No, uh, I'm, I'm destroyed. I'm destroyed. <laughs> I've given up. Lockie's done the theory tonight because he stole <laughs> what I was going to go for. Um. So nice one there, Lockie. Uh. Let's 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 go from kit to kit. Um. I want, I want to hear Kit's pitch. All right. I'm going to be a little bit of a uh, iconoclast, really. Uh, I'm going to pick one of the most famous battles in history, one that we all think is incredibly important and pivotal and all that kind of crap, because it really wasn't. I've picked the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Go so through. the Anglo-Zulu War in itself was utterly pointless. This was started by the British as pure colonialism, um, it was actually done not by the British government, but by the uh, the High Commissioner down in South Africa, um, uh, a giant guy with a wonderful name of um, of Bartle Fieri. And um, he wanted basically to annoy Zululand. So he gave them a provocative ultimatum that they could never possibly meet. And Ketchewayo had no uh, option but to reject it. And Lord Chelmsford invade Zululand. After that, we have what is one of the big surprising victories of the Victorian era. The Zulus actually beat the British at the Battle of Isindwala. And what follows, everyone knows. There is a massacre at Isindwala and a Zulu impi marches on this tiny garrison at Rourke's Drift um, that is completely helpless. It gets surrounded. Stanley Baker and, and Michael Caine mount the defence. The thing is, the Battle of Rourke's Drift was never supposed to happen. It, the leader was a guy called Prince Dabula Manzi. Uh, he was the half-brother of Ketchewayo. And Ketchewayo had given explicit instructions not to provoke the British by going anywhere into Natal, not to attack British settlements. So he was actually going against the general director at the strategic objectives of, the, of the, the war they were fighting, which is really a damage limitation exercise. Because the moment you provoke the British. The moment you go across the buffalo, everything gets worse for Quechua. And obviously today we don't have Zululand on a map. The battle itself, I don't really need to go into. Everyone knows the story. There was no singing of men of Harlech at the end. And there was no saluting by the Zulu Impi at the end either when they turn around and leave. The reason they turned around and left was that they realized they were in deep shit with Quechua because they were not supposed to attack the British. The whole battle should never have happened. And what it did was rather than give the Zulus an impressive victory at Isindwala so they could consolidate their position and maybe stand a chance, 
it gave the British a propaganda exercise. Hey, look, guys, it isn't a massive defeat of the empire. We have this victorious last stand hope of a couple of hundred men successfully beating off the, uh, the horrible natives. This is imperialism propaganda at its finest. It should never have happened. And the whole battle was completely and utterly pointless. Dark. Yes, Kit. Yes, Kit. It's worse than that, though, because they the part of the issue that the Zulus faced, yes, they had the numbers advantage, but they'd been marching for uh, days. They had, out, if I remember rightly, and, and Lockie will probably know this better than me, but hadn't they outstripped their supplies? Or they certainly hadn't eaten in a long time. So they weren't really in a state to fight at Rourke's Drift. And Rourke's Drift wasn't so much a, an advancing party. They that was the hospital that was kind of left behind with a with a sort of skeleton crew of defenders, really not expecting to see any action. The main force of three thousand crossed the buffalo into Zululand, uh, pitched a camp um, at where the big blooming rock is. Isn't uh, really, yeah. at, yeah, Isanwana, and uh, and then Lord Chelmsford took uh, the main force of three thousand uh, off to look for a fight. Um, leaving a thousand or so at the rock, and um, all of a sudden, uh, the main Zulu impi of about twenty thousand Zulus comes over the ridge line, and they did the most bizarre thing. I know the conduct of the battle doesn't really matter all that much, you know, in the context of it. But um, what what would you do if you know you've got your Martini Henry rifles, you've got a hill behind you, you grab as much water as much ammunition as you can, and you hoof it up the hill, and you say, "Come get us." if you want to. Um, and instead, they stuck out this weird extended firing line that after a few volleys and an initial check of the Zulus, the Zulus decide they can run round. And they do. And that's that's the ball game. And but, you hit really on an important point. Rourke's Drift was a hospital. Again, this is not something that Ketchawaya wanted to attack. It was just going to be propaganda for the British. And the problem is, he's got this, his half-brother, this uh, the manager chap, who basically is spoiling for a fight. He wasn't involved in Isandwala enough, he thought. He was looking for some sort of honour score, and so he went off and attacked Rourke's Drift on his own initiative. But that, that's what I'm getting at with this. He overstretched himself. The, I, I forget his name, apologies, but the guy in charge of the MP that attacks at Rourke's Drift, he's pushed himself too far too fast. Hasn't yes. His men are tired, aren't fed, etc., etc. Lockie, have I got that wrong? Yeah, no, no, you know, there's a couple of things. I mean, part of the reason that the British had decided that the Zulus were a problem um, were they, they'd sort of reinstated a few of their old traditions. Um, and one of them is the washing of the spears. And you can't get married until you've washed the spears in your blood of your, your enemies. And that usually meant popping over to Swaziland and, and killing a few villages over there and then coming back. Um, but actually, the opportunity to kill an enemy was one that, that they thought they'd missed, actually, because this is the right horn of the buffalo that's sweeping round this Anwana. Um, the main sort of force hits the, the main British force, but this right horn is sweeping round and is, is swinging at thin air. And all of a sudden there's the, the chance to actually kill a few enemies at what looks like a soft um, spot to do so. Uh, and they decide against orders to cross the Buffalo River and, and take that opportunity. So it's, a, it's something that shouldn't have happened for sure. I like this one. I haven't got any deep. Usually I love to ask a deeply unpleasant question. I haven't got a deeply unpleasant question for you, Kit. I'm really sorry. You've broken him. Right. Okay, Zach, where are you going to go next in search of someone to ask deeply unpleasant questions and torture? Yeah, who do I get to be a git to next? Um, 
I'm I'm going to go to my history podcast wife next. Um, Mrs. White, Charlie, what have you got for us? I knew you were going to pick me when you said you were going to be you were going to be mean to somebody. Because I'm I'm going to I'm going to take you back to the 17th. Um, so this particular pitch is is not to my usual level of planning to within an inch of my life because in the great manner of clocks for any 90s kids out there I'm not even supposed to be here today so I want to talk to you about a battle which is very close to my heart I'm not a military historian so you know I'm, I'm more into the the sex and politics and you know, this is sort of the this is what comes out of sex and politics is men shooting each other so so this is a, a battle I want to talk to you about um John Adams, who, when he was the foreign ambassador over here from America, before he was president, went to Worcester. This was in, uh, he went there in 1786. So he went over there from this newly rebel country and was shocked to find that people of Worcester didn't know about the battle that had taken place there in September 1651. And he said, do Englishmen so soon forget the ground where liberty was fought for? Tell your neighbours and your children that this is holy ground, much holier than that on which your churches stand. All England should come in pilgrimage to this hill once a year. And you know what the English are like when Americans tell them to do something. So we promptly completely forgot about it. But I do want to talk to you about the Battle of Worcester because I think it was completely pointless. It was a complete shit show. Uh, it was the last stand of the future Charles II. We have to call him Charles Stuart at this point because he wasn't King of England at this point. Uh, we were in a bit of a mess after having a civil war. So the backtrack is that the civil war has been lost. I, I'm sorry, did you expect nuance and bipartisanship? No, no, <laughs> I'm a royalist. Yeah. We've lost. I'm not gonna try and come at this from both sides. Uh, the civil war had been lost. The king has been executed in 1649. And the only, the only friend that Charles Stuart has on this island at this moment, bizarrely, is the Scottish. I say bizarrely because they switch sides a couple of times during the Civil War, because for the Scottish, the big thing for them at this point in history is religion. They are Presbyterians. It's a, a offshoot of... Anglicanism of you know, the Church of England, but of course it's Scotland, so we don't call it that. So it's it's Protestantism, and they are covenanters. This is this is what they they call themselves. This comes from making a covenant with God. So they're a different branch of Protestantism to the Church of England. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And that's a big difference at this point. Doesn't sound like much of a difference, but this is an issue. And this is why they switch sides a few times. So they side with Charles I when they think he's going to uh, make Presbyterianism the thing. When he doesn't do it, they sell him out to the parliamentarians and then it happens again. So at this point, 
Cromwell and his cronies aren't doing what they want in terms of religion. So they say, okay, let's let's side with the royalists, get them back, and they will put the covenant into, into force in England. This is what we want. So Charles, against all of the advice that he's getting from his elder advisors, signs a treaty with the Scottish Kirk, that's the, the government they have in place at the time, which says that he is going to um, accept the covenant. Big mistake. Part of this results in the death of one of his most loyal subjects, the Marquis of Montrose, uh, who is, is killed by the Kirk um, at this point for, for this reason. For, um, for him signing this. And when Charles lands in Scotland, it becomes pretty clear very quickly that all of the deals he signed in this treaty don't matter to, to the Scottish Kirk at all. He is very much their prisoner. Um, they parade him through the streets of Edinburgh as this sort of returning champion, making a point of marching him past all the bits of Montrose, who's kind of put up around the city for him to see and then he's put under house arrest so i'm going to rattle through this because we need to get to worcester this is the battle so he's under house arrest but then they decide they're going to crown him at which point he kind of gets some leeway with parliament he starts to build up an army after dunbar they need the king to help rally people to them because while they've got him back cromwell comes up to dunbar and i'm trying to think of of a word that is suitable to say but he does not treat the Scottish well. They lose very heavily at Dunbar and the army is decimated. So the Scots need a way to rebuild their army and a king is, a, yeah, that's that's the word I wanted to say, Zach, or I'm not going to say it. Uh, they need to get an army. The great way to get an army is to have a king, have a figurehead, someone for men to rally around. So... The, so we get quite a lot of men coming to Charles Stuart at this time. He gets around 15,000 good infantry men, hardly any cavalry. They don't have traditionally a lot of cavalry in the Highlands, which is where they're pulling men down from. Because after Dunbar, you've lost Edinburgh. You've lost the south of Scotland to Cromwell. So they're trying to build up this army. They haven't got any much horse, but they've got a decent amount of people. Cromwell tries to fence in the army where they are at Stirling. He comes in a little pincer movement like people like to do. I understand this from military, all my military history that I don't have. Um, he comes in from, from the east, from the west, and there's a little bit just south of Stirling where Scotland's very skinny at the Firth of Forth and you've got water coming in the other side. He thinks he can, he can sort of ram them in there, but they sneak around the corner and they start marching south. This is the end game. This is what Charles Stuart is trying to do. He wants to get to London and get his crown back. This is the idea. At the moment, he's in Scotland. Long way to go, guys. So he goes to check out Carlisle and thinks he might be able to take Carlisle, but he's only got 80 men with him at that point. He's just on a little detachment and it's too heavily guarded. So he goes to Lancashire where the Earl of Derby is going to come and meet him with some more men. Hooray, we're getting some more men. 250 men turn up with the Earl of Derby. This is going to be an issue. As Charles starts marching south towards London, he issues the rallying cry, men come and fight for your king, and no one turns up. 
This is 1651 at this point, um, early 1651 in the spring. Oh, no, sorry. Um, we are in August 1651. Everyone is knackered. We've had this civil war going on since 1642. There have been so many men killed in the civil war. In, in terms of numbers and proportion of population killed, this is really, really bad. Uh, there aren't men to spare. And certainly the, the idea of being war weary, yeah, you're really, really very war weary. No one wants to come and fight for this lost cause. Um, but he keeps, he keeps pressing down and he's got this real problem in that he's 21 years old. He's a 21 year old man with friends who are in their early 20s and a lot of older generals who know what they're talking about and all the young cavaliers and the name you know, it was a it was a, a mean name but it is true they they want to go they want to march they want to fight they want to get this thing done but his generals say look we we can't we haven't got enough men we need to rest so they decide to head to shrewsbury where charles the first had gathered his army at the beginning of 1642 uh, but that's a republican garrison now can't go there worcester is open so they march into worcester this army that charles has got around him mainly from the highlands march into worcester on the 22nd of august 1651 they build a fort and the king calls a muster for the 26th come and fight against military rule there is no mention at this point of any kind of fight based on religion and this is an important point because if he'd have said anything about religion there would be issues and this is going to come up later so the muster he calls the muster come and fight for me against this horrible military dictatorship and 150 men show up Ugh, still still not good so there's a a big service in worcester cathedral and the anglican minister there says come and fight for your king come and fight for the head of the Church of England. Now, who have we got in Worcester? A load of Scots covenanters. This starts to become a massive problem because all of these men who've come to fight for God, for the covenant, that is why they have marched down into England, this Scottish army. Suddenly, hang on, what? We're, we're just fighting to put this guy back on his throne and we're not going to get the religious settlement that we wanted this isn't good right I'm just gathering sorry gathering my thoughts because this is so frustrating for me this whole thing I'm still not over it 1651 <laughs> I'm not over this so basically his whole army is now sort of sitting there and saying what's the point where Cromwell's army organized totally well drilled this this new model army this is the point at which we get armies that we recognize today they're just marching down no problem um cromwell shows up he blocks them he blocks the royalist army into worcester he blocks them from the east and the south and while he's doing that he has lambert and fleetwood march up from the south and you can't go anywhere completely completely blocked in uh they build boat bridges across the rivers around worcester as well to help the armies get into worcester easier this is some smart stuff that, that you're going to recognize from all the major battles that come after this um the royalist army have three choices at this point they either fight they buckle down for a siege or they retreat they can get out back to scotland 
it's almost like Cromwell's left that. It's like he's left them a little, you can piss off back where you came from route uh, open to them because this is to all intents and purposes, a Scottish army. On the 2nd of September, 1651, Charles takes his generals up to the top of Worcester Cathedral, looks out at the situation and they decide what they're going to do is they're going to split their army in two. How big's this army again? About 15,000 guys, um, 15,000 Scottish guys who don't want to be there. They're going to split them in two. Fantastic idea. And they're going to take Cromwell's army in a pincer movement. What's Cromwell done? He's already got you in a pincer movement, guys. All the time you've been talking about what you're going to do and figuring out how you're going to do it. Cromwell's done it like a week ago. You are totally totally screwed so it ends up being from the royalist side not a well-coordinated pincer movement because they've got no time to organize this they cromwell's forced their hand it's two shoddy frontal assaults and making make of that what you will in two waves the duke of hamilton leads the first wave gets mortally wounded and they just get decimated charles leads the second uh wave Men are just being shot down by Cromwell's army in, in swathes. They've got officers being shot from their horses, you know, having their horses shot under them. It's chaos. Charles is going from regiment to regiment trying to get people to fight. He's, you know, he's, he's going around and just trying to keep morale up. But he's got this real problem because the Scottish general who's leading the the cavalry charge or who's meant to be leading the cavalry charge david leslie he's doing completely the opposite he's he's got this completely um disillusioned force who don't want to fight and he's not encouraging them at all and basically they don't turn up so all the time charles is there going from regiment to regiment saying come on guys we can do this the cavalry are going to be here any minute and they don't come and they're completely outnumbered. Was it pointless? I think it was completely pointless as a battle, uh, as well as being outnumbered. Leslie knew that his men weren't even going to fight. So what was the point in this battle at all? They might as well have just sat there and let it happen. Thank God Charles got away. I mean, this this then leads into my, my favourite story from from British history, and that's the escape of Charles II, which is this great little manhunt across the country, and he eventually gets out. But you've got on the other side Cromwell and Lambert and Fleetwood. This is this is like a supergroup of generals because the parliamentarians had the sense to have at least something of a meritocracy in the army and take the the, the sort of big lords out of the equation and put people who actually knew about military tactics in points of position um you know leslie gets this really really bad rep throughout time um you know the scottish cavalry had been engaged in a three-hour battle elsewhere to the east of the city which is why they didn't come in and, and help maybe maybe his instinct was to think that this cause may be lost but i've still got to get these men home because you know this isn't my fight my fight is looking after scotland and funnily enough leslie gets um leslie gets put into the peerage after the restoration so maybe he wasn't as bad as we think but clarendon said that that leslie was 
was so amazed on that fateful day that he performed not the office of a general or of any competent commander. <laughs> it's just, it, yeah, I've, I find it incredibly frustrating as, as a battle. I think it was completely pointless, but I think that people need to remember it and know more about it because it was hugely important because this was the moment that the royalist threat in inverted commas, um, yeah, this was the moment that it was over. This is the moment we were a republic. So battle was done. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Pointless. I feel your pain, Charlie. Um, we miss we miss nine years of Charlie 2 rule. It's it's a sad, sad day. I know. Um, think of all the babies he could have made in that time. Wasn't, <laughs> wasn't he kind of perfectly happy to... You know, make up for last time when he got back to Europe, though. <laughs> it was interesting. He said, he said, you know, he was never going to go on his travels again. And to understand the merry monarch, you have to understand the young man who went through what he went through. So, you know, being on, be, he was on the battlefield at what, 14, 15, no, 11, 12, he was at um, Edge Hill with his father. And yeah, to be, I completely get the frustration. I get the sitting and waiting for something to happen and feeling like, okay, these, these guys have got an army. They're going to give me an army. Let's go. Let's fight. Let's do this thing. Let's avenge my father and take back my birthright. But, but is, is that kind of why it might not be pointless? Oh, can we just set, step to one side for a moment and acknowledge that Charles II in armour is like Hague, in with his dog it's it's a <laughs> it's a one of those moments it's but a good look. it's a good look for him I do kind of wonder if this is a battle that isn't entirely pointless because you just said yourself for Charles there is a point here he needs that thrown back that's his birthright for the parliamentarians this has the potential to undo everything that they fought for over the course of the civil war and somebody possibly Cromwell at some point says, you know, if we lose a battle, we lose our heads. 
I think he's actually talking about Charles I, isn't he? And he says, if, if the king loses, his, loses the war, he's still the king. If we lose this war, you know, it, it's going to be our, our heads on traitor's gate. So for the parliamentarians, they've got to fight to stay yes. alive. And for Charles, he's got the impetus because it's his birthright. Yeah. Also, you know, the, the whole thing with Cromwell and his massive hard-on for going after the Scots, he hated them. He absolutely hated them. So you know, to, to be a year, year on from Dunbar, which he thought was brilliant. He, he loved Dunbar. He thought that was like the best thing he'd, he'd ever done. Uh, and this was exactly a year later on the 3rd of September, they were both on the 3rd of September, he had this real thing about it. And then he died on the 3rd of September, 1658. So, yay. <laughs> yay. Take that. Massive um, thunderstorm, wasn't it? They actually reckon he held, he held on. He, actually, he was like, he, he wanted to die on that day when he, when he knew he was dying. He actually sort of held out to go on the 3rd, which, you know, it's the kind of thing I'd do. Be like, can I die on the day of the restoration? But no, I think it I think it was pointless in very much in the sense that no one was ready for that fight. But your enemies don't wait for you to gather troops. And I mean they took everything. The the deaths, the level of the level of deaths. I I dropped my notes. You know, this was actually the biggest battle on British soil since um, the Battle of Towton in 1461 and before that Boudicca's fight that Sophie told us about this is one of the biggest battles on English soil and we never talk about it so at the end they took 10,000 prisoners uh, three earls seven scotch lords 640 officers 10,000 men they took um, all the colours and all the guns and uh, killed 2,000 Scots. And on the other side, it's about 200 parliamentarian soldiers killed. It's a complete bloodbath. You just answered what was going to be my next question, which was what are the losses? Um, so yeah. you know me too well, but that's why and you're my you history know? podcast. I see and hear nothing else now than the words desiccated turkey twizzler. <laughs> I'm never going to unsee that. As long as I live, Kit Chapman, you are a wrong un. I've just seen the chat. <laughs> look, thank you for giving me the opportunity to rant about this because, I, like I say, I'm not over it. It's it's awful. It was pointless. And, yeah. Well done. Then that, I just slap her now. That is her being unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> That's Charlie doing it at the last moment, isn't it? Longer than my pitches when I spent like an yeah. hour and a half on prep. It's just like, why do we even bother? No. Right. Still trying to unsee that mental image. Zach, quick. Another yeah, another pointless battle. To t- Stop doing the hand signal kit. No. Turkey Twizzler has got to be up there with Hitler's baby juice, hasn't it? Oh, mate, yeah. I mean, if ever there was going to be a quote mug that Boney needs to get made. Not sure Hitler's baby juice ones would sell, but perhaps Turkey Twizzler ones will. will. Lockie looks like he's going to be sick. And on that basis, we won't go to Lockie, we'll go to Clive instead. Thank you. My dinner's just arrived, so that was good timing. Okay, as Sophie has told us, all war is pointless, all war is wrong and ultimately futile. 
I'm no zoologist, but I suspect that the human species is probably the only one that kills itself off in such spectacular numbers. The First World War, the source of much fascination among many history hackers, was the first truly mechanized war on a global scale. Industrial advances from machine guns to canned food allowed it to continue to a nutritional stalemate after four years. Ultimately, industrial power swung the balance and the surrender of, of economically backward Russia was more than compensated for by the arrival, albeit late, of American doughboys and the central powers paid the price. The end came quickly. The Bulgarians quit on 29th September 1918, the day upon which the German Supreme Command told the Kaiser that the situation was impossible. The Ottoman Empire capitulated on 30th October, and three days later, after heavy defeats by the Italians, the Austro-Hungarian Empire called it a day. Germany was alone and facing internal chaos, with a naval uprising which began on 30th October in Williamshaven, Wilhelmshaven, and spread throughout the country. Despite this, and despite telegram entreaties to Berlin from the US president and others to cease hostilities, the fight went on. However, in the early morning of 7th November, French soldiers of the 171st Russian Regiment Infantry, that's my French accent, near Hodroy, again my French accent, were startled by an unfamiliar bugle call. Fearing they were about to be overrun, they cautiously advanced towards the increasingly loud noise when out of the fog three vehicles emerged, their sides glistening with the Imperial German insignia. The Germans had come to talk. Negotiations for an armistice commenced, although to call them negotiations in the true sense of the word would be to misdescribe the discussions. The Germans were presented with one choice, surrender. The only changes they made to the Allied proposal was to delete or alter impossible demands, such as a requirement to surrender more U-boats than they possessed. Eventually, the armistice was signed at 5 a.m. on 11th November 1918 and was to come into effect at 11 a.m., six hours later. The reason for this delay was to allow communication to the combatants. To a great extent, it worked, although news of the armistice did not reach those fighting in East Africa for a fortnight. Across the Western Front, however, news spread quickly. So, what would you do if you heard the news that the war was to end in a few hours? Well, you'd keep your head down for fear that the other side had not yet received the news, but you'd keep your head down, stay put, and thank God you are still alive. Live and let live. Or at least any sensible person would. 10 million soldiers and 8 million civilians have been killed. A further 30 million have been wounded. If you heard the news that this slaughter was about to come to an end, why would you do anything other than stay safe? Killing the enemy would not end the war any quicker. Any killing was totally without point. And while that principle applied to so much of the front, it was sadly not universal. A further 11,000 casualties were recorded on that last day. 3,000 men died. They didn't die for our liberty. They didn't die so that others could live. They didn't die to end all wars. They died for no good reason. While there are sad stories of those last soldiers dying along the front, the most awful tales come from the American sector. The Americans had arrived late to the war. Their soldiers, and particularly their commanders, did not carry the array of medals that their British and French counterparts did, 
Yet at the same time, their army had grown far beyond its peacetime size. A cessation of hostilities would see a reduction in size and a, and a reduction in opportunity for military men. Now was, it appears, the time to shine, one last chance to show what a great commander one was and to stand out from those of similar ranks. American units pressed forward. 3,500 of the casualties recorded on that last morning of the war were among American units. I haven't discovered how many people they killed. Pershing, the American commander, was not a huge fan of an armistice. He wanted to defeat and conquer. Their request is an acknowledgement of weakness and clearly means that the Allies are winning the war. Germany's desire is only to regain time to restore order among her forces, but she must be given no opportunity to recuperate and we must strike harder than ever. There can be no conclusion to this war until Germany is brought to her knees. Pershing claimed that he, was, that he only became aware of the armistice at 6 a.m. This was disingenuous. He was privy to the terms the day before, including the term that fighting would cease at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Not really something that one would forget. While he informed his subordinates the fact of the armistice, once he had been told of its signature at 6 a.m., he did not issue any orders. He did not countermand the orders to attack already given. Major General Charles P. Summerall, Pershing's commander of the 5th Corps, told his senior officers, Rumours of an enemy capitulation come from our successes. We are swinging the door by its hinges. It's got to move. Only by increasing the pressure can we bring about the enemy's defeat. Get into action, dead across. I don't expect to see any of you again, but that doesn't matter. You have the honour of definitive success. Give yourself to that. The attack on the Meuse continued. Summerall sent a further message to his officers during the attack that morning. Armistice signed and takes effect at 11 o'clock this morning. No order telling them to discontinue the attack. At 16 minutes, past, uh, 16 minutes to 11, news of the armistice reached Brigadier General William Nicholson, commander of the 157th Brigade. He ordered... There will be absolutely no let-up until 11 a.m. Among his troops was Private Henry N. Gunter of the 313th Machine Gun Battalion. With less than a minute to go before the armistice came into effect, Gunter was shot and killed, the last soldier to die on the Western Front. The Germans had shot, stopped shooting. Gunter continued his attack and was brought down by the defenders in an act of self-defense. In the last moments, artillery commanders fired repeated salvos as to avoid their men having to lug the shells back to the depot. Some attacks were brought forward to 10th November as a result of the impending cessation of hostilities. Also in the Meuse, the 89th Division commander, Major General William M. Wright, determined to take Stenay, a town on its eastern banks, because... The division has been in the line a considerable period without proper bathing facilities, and since it was realised that if the enemy were permitted to stay in Stenay, our troops would be deprived of the probable bathing facilities. Wright sent a brigade to take the town. As the doughboys passed through Pooley, a 10.5 centimetre howitzer shell landed in their midst, killing 20 Americans. 
Wright's division suffered 365 casualties, including 61 dead in the final hours. Stenay was the last town taken by the Americans. They could have walked to the bathhouses unopposed after 11 a.m. 61 of them never bathed again. A year later, a congressional subcommittee investigated the actions of that fateful final morning. Oscar E. Bland, a, a Republican congressman, questioned General Fox Connor. Bland, do you know of any good reason why the order, order to commanders should not have been that the armistice had been signed to take effect at 11 o'clock and that actual hostilities or fighting should cease as soon as possible in order to save lives? Connor. Uh, American forces would not have jeopardized being jeopardized by such an order, if that's what you mean. Bland, regarding Pershing's notification to his armies, merely that hostilities were to commence at 11 a.m., did the order leave it up to individual commanders to quit firing before or go ahead firing until 11 o'clock? Connor, yes. Bland, in view of the fact that we had ambitious generals in this army who were earnestly fighting our enemies and who hated to desist from doing so, would it have been best under the circumstances to have included in that order that hostilities would cease as soon as practical before 11 a.m.? Connor. No, sir, I don't. I do not. Bland. How many generals did you lose on that day? Connor. None. Bland. How many colonels did you lose on that day? Connor. I do not know how many were lost. Bland. How many lieutenant colonels did you lose on that day? Connor. I do not know the details of any of that. Bland. I am convinced that on 11th November, there was not any officer of very high rank taking any chance of losing his own life. Connor. The statement made by you, I think, Mr. Bland, is exceedingly unjust. And as an officer who was over there, I resent it to the highest possible degree. Bland. I resent the fact that these men were lost and the American people resent the fact that these lives were lost and we have a right to question the motive, if necessary, of the men who have occasioned this loss of life. As pointless actions and pointless battles, the fighting on 11th November by the Americans was the most outrageous waste of life and limb. That it was ordered from the highest echelons and justified afterwards makes it all the more outrageous. Around half the casualties occurred on that day occurred as a result of these pointless men. Yeah, this is my winner from the very beginning because this has just fucking incensed me for years. Uh, before we go to our judge, that Lockie, do you want to rip this? Yeah, I don't mind ripping it a little bit, actually. I mean, if, if there was um, history of armistices and ceasefires being respected at all times through the war, then I'd say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Trouble is, there weren't. I mean, when Russia initially makes noises that they're happy to sit down and talk peace, it takes months. And Germany has to attack them again before they sit down and actually have the treaty at Brest-Litovsk. Um, there were white flags shot at all the time. Um, almost no combatant party had serious reason to trust one another. And certainly there wasn't much reason among the Allies to trust the Germans until they properly stopped. Plus, you don't just... You know, there's this issue, issue of hyper-masculinity to a degree. You don't just hoik people out, teach them to hate an enemy, hate them with every kind of visceral part of them, and then say, I'll oh, just stop now. 
Okay, no, you know, it's, it's not as simple as that, uh, I'm afraid. And I'm with the officers uh, at the time, some politician sometime later saying, oh, you're totally, you shouldn't have uh, done any more fighting up to a certain point. Like, well, you weren't there, mate. So wind it in. How's, how's that for a Cockney accent? <laughs> but, then, but then the but the Americans did a lot more of it than the British, the French, Canadians, and all the others. Okay, so combined. the British, the British and French in particular, they've been shell hole dropping for months, thinking, "All right, they're cooked now. It's someone else's turn to have a go." And so the officers would, you know, actually know the Germans are not cooked. They're not done. They're still fighting, and they still need beating. Okay, so this dropping in shell hole stuff is just going to give them chance to recharge which we can't give them. We've got to keep fighting right to the end. And that's, you know, you look back at Haig's dispatch of the 11th of April. Each of us must hold on till the end. And it wasn't the end yet. Can I just stoke this fire a little bit and get Alex and Clive's response on that? Uh, shut up, Lockie, is my response. I'm too <laughs> for anything else. I just, like, I'm thinking of, like, 300 guys who didn't need to die. I just, I do wonder. I think the only nation that would have done it that what Clive's describing is the Americans. Cause it's like, they still had something to prove. Did they feel like they still had something to prove? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, on that point, I'll, I'll, I'll support Clive because there were American gunners still firing after 11 o'clock mm. for one of two reasons. Either they were too lazy to drag their shells back with them, or they wanted to say they'd fired the last shots of the war. Yeah. Either which not acceptable. But then we're back into this territory where everybody's expecting people to behave like gentlemen in the middle of a fucking war. Yeah. It wasn't in the middle, it was at the end. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was the end. Oh, you're such a lawyer. <laughs> Heather, you're American. Are you mad or not at this, or are you just half asleep? Both. Um, I think it honestly was a waste of lives, personally. But also, you're in a war... You came late. You feel you do have to prove that, you know, you gave as good as you got. But in the end, it's just a waste of, of lives that could have gone home to their families. Can I, can I ask just a technical question? <laughs> what? Go on, Kit. Um, what, what, what's the battle here? There isn't one, really. I mean, there was the kind of advance over the Meuse, Mers, Mers, whatever it's, it is. It's just dickheads sending people to their doom, as far as I can tell. Mm. I mean, it comes under the 100 days, doesn't it? If you're asking to the yeah. official battle non-clemature nerds, I suppose they'd argue it comes under the 100 days. Zach? But then you'd makes... have to argue the 100 days was pointless, and was that a pointless battle? Uh, nope. Well, no, because up until the moment, this is the whole point of Clive's pitch, that up until the armistice, there is a point, And then once the armistice is confirmed, then there isn't a point. Um, Kit makes a, a, a good objection that is a shaming, I'm ashamed to say it hadn't occurred to me. The only, I, I'm with Alex on this one, just, Sophie, can you put your fingers in your ears for a second so you don't have to hear this? Thank you very much. Just what the actual fuck, you know? After I, I hear what you say, Lockie, and I, I do kind of take you about you know hyper masculinity, and you train these people to hate, but just just give it a fucking rest, you know. After all of that death, just just know. And I, I'm with Clive. You know, 
So you go and take the bloody bathhouse. Who honestly cares? You can walk to the bathhouse. If you don't wash for the next six weeks, the next six months, doesn't matter. You're still alive. So go and wash another time. Um, the only question I have, and this is a kind of techie question, and I don't know if Lockie perhaps has more kind of knowledge on this because this is very much your area, but it's about American tactical doctrine. What is the American way? Is it to just push and keep pushing and, and reinforce and push on some more? Or is there a different thing at play that makes this whole kind of philosophy of hammer them to the end just even more kind of egregious? Lockie, would you agree there's an inferiority complex so far as the Americans are concerned in the First World War because of the late arrival, and this has got a lot to do with it? So there's certainly something to prove, yeah. Um, and it's it comes down to, uh, as well to the fact that um, Pershing absolutely wouldn't let um, uh, his units come under... Um, you wouldn't, say, let American divisions just slot into British corps. Uh, for example, to come under British commanders. He was absolutely adamant that the Americans would have their own sector. And necessarily, there's a bit of a disconnect between, you, you know, either well, the, the, those countries that they sympathise with, Britain and France. So in France, from a Republican point of view, they feel they have things in common with them and England with a the, Britain with a language thing, they've got things in common too. But they're desperate not to have any kind of subservience to an army of King George, you know, for cultural reasons That's um, despite and, the fact that they're actually woefully behind the curve aren't they just because they haven't been in the war you learn ultra quick in a war and they've not been in it so they turn up with on the one hand this complete belligerence about being under anybody else's command as far as Pershing is concerned but in tandem with the fact that you are not as you just haven't had the learning curve so you are inadequate in terms of trench warfare and industrial warfare do not be thinking of this american army as coming in like hoorah kings of the world they are embryonic i mean the american army that you think of today was born in france in 1918 it didn't exist and and there's a simple fact that in this war most units learn by doing um i've got a huge amount of respect for those units that learn from other people's mistakes and and some of them do it actually some of them do but a lot don't most don't Um, most of them need to have the bloody nose before they before they learn how to fight properly um and that's certainly true of the americans you know in in sort of even mid 1918 they're making the same mistakes that the british were making in say 1915 1916 so yeah um something to prove certainly isn't it true, also true that the Americans didn't sign the armistice and actually never signed an armistice? Uh, yeah, I think it's because Wilson, what was it, Wilson and his 12 points obsession? It's definitely just something to do with him, isn't it, Lockie? Mm. Uh, they don't have representation at Compiègne, do they? Um, it's, it's, it's... Which says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah. They're not in the railway carriage. No. I'm trying to think why that would be. I mean, it's certainly, you know, Wilson's 14 points it is, isn't it? Um, are what they initially want the kind of, you know, they're in, in October, they're asking for, for mediation based on Wilson's 14 points. But even the Americans by that point said, nah, that ship sailed. I like that one. No further questions, Your Honour. I'm, I'm just enjoying you three <laughs> being eloquent about World War One stuff. 
You're, this is the last time I'm ever going to do a pitch based upon World World, World War One. Rest assured. <laughs> well, you should because it might actually convince Holmes to kind of go with you for once. The one day Holmes isn't here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I just imagine that I'm amazed anyone's eloquent apart from Sophie in this room, and even James has been out on the piss this weekend. I think the rest of us are just hanging a little bit still. Some we've Clive's done World War One, and now Lockie's not going to do World War One, is he? No, no I, don't see, I don't see the First World War as pointless. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I am going to do, though, is a battle that we, we all know. Um, it's one that many of us have worked on, and some of us have even made some money guiding people around. Um, it's, yeah, for all the glamour and the stories and the heroism, though, I think it's one that's completely unnecessary. Uh, I'm talking about the Battle of dun, 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 Waterloo. Oh, so wish Princess was here. Yeah. Just to watch his little tweed-clad head explode. Would it, it? Yeah, maybe. Explode maybe it, it would. Well, are you Waterloo. telling me that a Waterloo Napoleon didn't surrender? Well, I could. I mean, we could <laughs> have put on, a Abba was lying. <laughs> we could put a historiographical analysis uh, involving Abba uh, in there. But no, he pissed off back to... Paris initially, and then the government and those figures in Paris, and they all told him to piss off. So off he went, and he got picked up by HMS Bellerophon. So it wasn't until that point that he surrendered. So no, Sweden's finest, I'm afraid not. Um, and that's and that's maybe part of the story as well, the fact that he didn't surrender at Waterloo. But, you know, hoo-ha. All of it was taken care of beforehand, really. You know, a campaign that should never have happened. Really, I should be talking about the 1815 campaign, but, uh, you know, we're going to put a battle on this. And, you know, Waterloo being the decisive moment of the 1815 campaign, I'm happy to call it that. Uh, Napoleon was done. He was packed off. He was in exile. Uh, the Allied nations had sat down in Vienna, uh, ending years of war after 1814. Um, I mean, for however disappointing Louis XVIII might have been as a restored monarch in France, and across Europe, we had peace um, until Napoleon got bored. Um, I don't, yeah, maybe I simplify the boredom thing. I mean, promises were made and not kept, etc. Uh, while he was on Elba. I don't think that's enough to justify what follows. Um, a couple of sort of what this isn't about, uh, which I don't really like doing, but what this is not about, this is not particularly about the Allies uh, that much, um, because they didn't ask for it, you know, didn't ask for him to come back, but they did have to fight. Um, they were put into a position where they had to fight if their authority and everything they'd fought for and all the kind of everything they'd hammered out was going to mean anything. Then they had to stand against Napoleon. And that's who they declared war on uh, when Napoleon came back and escaped his exile. They didn't declare war on France because they saw that as a, a monarchy under King Louis. Um, they declared war on Napoleon Bonaparte declared him uh, an outlaw. And the 1815 campaign is written about extensively um, and... <sighs> And it's, again, this is almost not about how the battle goes, um, actually, because that's, that's almost sort of beside the point. It's about why there was a battle, really. Um, did Napoleon Bonaparte have a serious chance of reversing his fortunes and changing the status of, of France and himself in Europe? So, I mean, how had he lost before? That's, that's worth considering. Is he going to be able to turn all these things around that are causing him to lose before? And like the bad decisions thing. I mean, invading Russia is rarely a good idea, um, unless, you, <laughs> unless you have a very strong plan indeed. Um, it's particularly 
a bad idea when you're already at war with the world's dominant sea power, um, as Napoleon was. So, you know, you're going to take on the world's biggest empire, the dominant sea power, and the world's largest single country in one go. I mean, we know how that goes. Okay, Napoleon's the invasion of Russia ends up with a with a with a serious reverse and a retreat, and him being weakened enough for the coalition to be put back together uh, again. So we're talking principally Britain, Russia, Prussia, and Austria, uh, essentially. Could he defeat individual armies? Yes, absolutely, he could defeat individual armies. But in 1813, the major land powers that he was fighting against hit upon a, a useful technique, which is don't just bowl into him, okay? Just keep your distance and refuse the fight until you can all come down on him together, okay? Uh, and having hopefully having worn him down over a period of, of months, um, which they did uh, at Leipzig. Um, and although Napoleon had a few amazing defensive victories uh, afterwards, there were just too many enemies to fight. Uh, in 1814, and, and France itself as a country was not up to fighting them all, uh, as much will as he may have had. So with that in mind, in 1815, is there any reason to think things wouldn't have gone the same way? No allies, all of Europe at war with you. It's only if the allies totally screwed up. That's your only, only chance, really, and it's massively unlikely. Could France put an army together again? Yes, they did. All right, definitely put a strong force together. And the, the army that Napoleon inherited, the, the Restoration Army, wasn't kind of tipped off all the way through. But he could certainly cobble together about 130,000 strong, largely experienced and, and crucially homogenous force. You know, these are all guys. A lot of them have fought under him before uh, and they're all speaking the same languages. So that's not the problem uh, necessarily for him. What he'd be up against was the problem, but also commanders. Now, um, over half of his marshals, um, some, some quite good ones, Marmont, Oudinot, Victor, um, were defected. Uh, Murat, uh, some others were deemed unreliable for one reason or another. Um, his best was probably Davout. But for that reason, he had to stay in Paris to keep an eye on things there. If Napoleon's going to go off campaigning again, he's, someone's got to keep, someone he believes in and who believes in Napoleon's got to stay there and keep an eye on things in Paris. Oh, there's some others. Berthier refused to serve, didn't he? And then mysteriously fell out of his window or <laughs> something. Um, and Soult, who takes over as chief of staff, is a lot less good. And when it actually came to battle time, his orders were muddled and all over the place. You know, he's got others like Grouchy, which, yeah, he's criticised too much, maybe. He's certainly over-promoted. Uh, but here you go. And, you know, well, Mortier is there as well, but he's laid up with sciatica when it comes to it. And Ney is the most famous of the lot. Uh, and he's not been the same since Russia, put it that way. He's racked with PTSD. And after the loss of his chief of staff, he's prone to weird decisions odd decisions and rash decisions and and this comes through in the in the battle uh, as well um so on the on the on the course of the battle just a, just a couple of minutes on this because it actually does feature a little bit the bad decisions rumble through it okay so the faffing about at Hougamont when actually battle engages and just the drain that that turns into on the French army, which they didn't need, didn't want, and didn't help. Not taking La Haye Sainte, the farm in the middle of the battlefield early, 
I don't know, why? Why? They realised far too late in the day that that was crucial. Nays charges going up. Oh, hang on a minute. I, when I was talking about all these other guys and their fingers, I didn't even mention Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte, if he was absolutely at the top of his game, then you might have a chance here. But there's no way that he's the same man as Austerlitz or Italy or, you know, these other ones. And he knew it as well. Plus, he wasn't well either. So, you know, he's surrounded by men he doesn't necessarily trust, doesn't necessarily believe in. He's taken a decent force forward, but against a huge enemy. And he's not tip-top uh, himself. Back to the battle. Yeah, Ney's charges and, and, and all these kind of bad decisions in the course of the battle. I know I said it wasn't about how the battle goes itself, but actually in the context of the whole thing being risky and questionable, these cock-ups in the course of the battle leads you, just gives the whole thing an air of, look, you've dragged all of Europe into war again. You've dragged us away from our homes and our families and peace. And for what? You don't even have the courtesy to bring your best. You know, you don't have the politeness to bring your A game against the combined forces of Europe. And you know, for, the, for that reason alone, uh, almost, it's such a fuck off. Um, I'm going to wrap up because I, I, I don't need to add too much more. This battle was set to by one army. I, I mean, we could do a whole hypothetical. You know, what if Napoleon had won? Okay, brilliant. You do have a combined army of, I don't know, 700,000 Austrians and Russians marching against you next, bankrolled by Great Britain, which wouldn't have just packed up, uh, actually. And potentially Prussia could have cobbled together a force to, to go alongside um, uh, the Austrians and Prus uh, Russians too. The British blockade would have restarted uh, immediately. France was in no position after 22 years of war to suddenly start financing uh, campaigns all around Europe again. So it's a hypothetical, but it makes it all worthless. And so even if they had won the field at Waterloo, so what? You know, no chance of lasting victory, which was unlikely anyway, because, you know, who was it who stood their ground against them? A general who was not in the habit of screwing up, uh, as it happens. Um, the emperor's lack of form himself, weakness in his subordinates, even before it had started. And we know the result of the battle anyway, so it didn't have happened, unlikely as it would have been. On the other side, let's talk about the Allies just for a second. You've got a reluctant frustrated coalition of war-weary states whose best hope of a result was a costly re-establishment of the status quo. That's the best they could hope for, okay? Which they achieved. What did they do? Okay, amazing. There were no winners besides, you know, a handful of individuals who, through their service on the battlefield, shot to prominence, but you got tens of thousands of losers. Genuinely, I mean, what, 26,000 dead Frenchmen, 14,000 odd dead on the Allied side uh, from the campaign, all for a waste of time, for a fool's hope. The Waterloo campaign, pointless. <laughs> a fucking men. Yeah, uh, look, I was going to pick this one until Lockie said, and then I decided not to argue with 1,300 feet worth of rugby <laughs> player. Um, you're preaching to the choir. I haven't ever made any secret of the fact that I think Napoleon is a colossal anus on many, many occasions. Um, I'm with you on the war weary thing. Charles Esdell has made the argument that the reason Napoleon actually gets back into power isn't because of the French civilian population. Yes, it's a plebiscite. All of Napoleon's plebiscites are rigged and corrupt and screwed anyway. Um, it's because the army flocks to him. 
and it's the army that's willing to rally to Napoleon because they're unemployed, because reductions in armies, post-war, because it's all over, Napoleon's been beaten, but he represents a return to the glory days, a return to employment. So they flock to him, and Louis left with nothing to do but run away. Um, I love the concept that Napoleon was just really discourteous not to bring a good game to the Waterloo campaign. (laughs) I I need to use that at some point. Um, The only thing, there are two things I would pick you up on. I would go further on the thing that Waterloo is pointless because Napoleon didn't need to fight Waterloo in the first place. If he'd got his shit together on the morning, well, actually during the course of the 16th, we've got a communication. He's got a whole corps that marches from Catra to Ligny yeah. and back again, two battles to the, that happened to the south. Uh, yeah, completely. And you, you, you're dead right. I probably should have brought that up. But Derlon's faffing about as well, kind of between Catrebra and, and, and Ligny, it, it turning up at either. Yeah, <laughs> he turns up at either. He completely wipes the floor, which with other, whichever force he, he ends up fighting. It, and what's even weirder about that is that that's Napoleon's strategy. That's what he's aiming for. And he still doesn't follow through on it. And then having won at Ligny and with Ney having fought that bloody stalemate at Catra Bras, he doesn't then act in the morning. What does he do? He sits around kind of making sure that everybody's had breakfast and kind of yeah. doing this tour of the battlefield and making some kind of show of, oh, making sure the wounded get treated. That's not your head in the game. You've got a that's force that's... Exactly. That is not Napoleon. Napoleon at his best is a man of action. Hit yeah. the bastards and then hit them again and then keep running after them and keep hitting them. Yeah. So for him to just sit there and let Wellington get away means that he has to fight Waterloo in the first place. Then if he fights Waterloo, what does he achieve? All he manages to do is create the same situation that he had on the morning of the 17th. He's just kind where's of he gonna, trying he gonna to march keep them to? Is he, he, he going to march on Brussels? In which case the remnants of the British army go away and get picked up and then they're inserted back in somewhere else uh, later on. Maybe... Spain or something, maybe maybe they're threatening south of France, but the naval dominance comes into play again. All right, you knock the Netherlands out for, for what that's worth, but you know, the Prussians potentially escape away uh, as well. And yeah, it's it's just it's for me, this is Napoleon and his arrogance and that kind of opportunistic git side that I cannot stand about the man. Um, the only counter question I'm going to ask and this creates the most bitter aftertaste in my mouth because it's a pro-Napoleon question, but I'm asking it in the kind of attempt to create some semblance of objectivity, which I really don't have. Um, did the Allies have to fight Napoleon in 1815 or could they have taken him at his word when he said that he came back in peace? I think from a political point of view, um, there was maybe too much at stake. Um, plus, I don't know if the Prussians would have trusted him. I don't know if the Austrians would have trusted him. Give him a couple of years and let him get stronger. I don't think those two powers in particular would want to give him that time. So you might actually have Prussia uh, as an instigator rather than give us some money and we'll see about some fighting. Um, Austria, certainly as well. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I'm not going to answer my own question, but... Do we actually believe you. Napoleon? No. Do we believe that all of this? Happened? Actually, no, that's not true. I, I do believe Napoleon in 1815 when he says that he doesn't want to fight because he knows he can't win that fight. 
So he does want peace, but he wants peace for 18 months so he can rebuild his armies, reassert his yeah. control, and then strike where it suits him. Yeah, I promise to be quiet now isn't the same as I promise to fuck off for good, is it? We'd made him fuck off. He should have crawled back under his rock. He should never have come out of, un, from under the rock in the first place. Here, here. Look at Port Heather. Oh, look, he's so sleepy. Poor Clive's face is like, oh, I thought I'd done it. I thought I'd done it. And then Lockie bought bloody Waterloo. Right, we are done. Uh, hello, the homes. God, it's just automatic, isn't it? Zach, have a ponder about which way you're going to go. Uh, while we go around the room and find out who everyone would have gone for if they couldn't have their own. So, Miss Sophie, if your argument can't win, who for you is one? I really liked Clyde. Oh, <laughs> look. Oh, Clive's like, yay. I'm going for Clive as well. Clive had me when he made the selection, to be honest, and no one's got... I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by how good Lockie's was, but it still hasn't swayed me away from Clive's. Uh, Chris? Um, I kind of have to get tied to who I want to win because she's uh, Germany to my Austro-Hungary. It's uh, Sophie, unfortunately. <laughs> Favourite child, Heather? I'm torn between Clive and Charlie. They both were great. And I loved Clive's American accents. They were fantastic. You mean fantastically bad? They were epic, mm. weren't they? I love it. They were great. Because there's a certain level of posh that just can't do American. And Clive is it. Clive, if you can't have yours. I think actually the, the War of Jenkins here is the one that grabbed me most. as just a totally pointless episode in history. So I will go with Heather. Although I think the emu war as well but we've had that before and also mm. i mean it isn't pointless is it if you can make the whole australian army look like a bunch of knobbers and you're a bird then i mean you <laughs> your war right i mean if you literally are employing guerrilla tactics to beat the humans i don't think you could call it pointless james I didn't about um yeah because i actually did consider the emu war but um I'm actually going to go with Clive here. I do find that last day of the armistice absolutely um, pointless, the fighting, especially going to the bathhouse, um, because it was just utterly and utterly pointless. There'd been truces before, so it wasn't like there hadn't been truces before. So they should have known better, but yeah. Although I will admit, um. Waterloo has its arguments and... Jenkins here is a very close second for me as well. I wonder if but Lockie's yeah. going to suffer as a result of people going, yeah, it might have been utterly pointless, but when you whoop the French, what's not to like? Lockie, if you can't have yours. Um, so I, I'm going to go with Rourke's Drift and Kit, not only because of his uh, tremendously astute telling of the story, but also because when I did my tour of uh, Rourke's Drift, had maybe the, one of the worst battlefield guiding experiences of my life uh, and I ended up at one of the most compelling and iconic battlefield sites in our country's history, leaving the tour going, that was a fucking waste of time. Yeah, I did that at Auschwitz. How can you bore people at Auschwitz? Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Okay. Stunning. We just had a guy going, I'm so privileged to be able to tell you the story of the time. Oh, just tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Charlie. Well, look, you know, I'm I'm team Sophie all the way because, you know, as somebody who tries so hard, I try so hard, Sophie, to understand wars and battles and to get it in my head and I'm rubbish at it. So I think they're all completely pointless. (laughs) But if I had to pick a battle, I would just like to say that I have learned more about Waterloo this evening um, than I ever learned from ABBA. Uh, so from that reason, lucky. Wonderful. Anyway. I have to tell you, Charlie, I was chatting to my agent about a particularly troublesome passage of something that Nikolai and I are trying to do. Um, and he was trying to explain, you know, like he was saying, like, I just, I don't want people to just switch off. We don't want it to be like a rump parliament deal where people yes. just <laughs> like, yes, yes. I hear those I words and I go, Ooh. <laughs> I know one person. Alex, Alex, can I just applaud you for getting in when I was talking to my agent? Oh, don't. It's not even like it's not like I make any money. You know me better than that, Clive. Says the poshest man in the room. Go on, Clive. Did you do yours? Who you'd go? I did mine. Kits. Um, I think it was the the words of Edwin Starr: "War, her, good God, y'all. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing." So I'm going to go with Sophie. Good job Holmes isn't here. He'd crap his pants about copyright if he was. Uh, (laughs) I agree. Right, Zach. Well, what is it good for? But there are at least one, two, three, four, four and a half people in this room that would literally have nothing to live for without it. That's how pathetic it is. We'd have like, we'd be working on self-checkouts in Morrison's. So... I mean, we'd probably be making more money than we are now if we were doing that, let's be honest. Yeah. You know when you say to a kid, what do you want to be? And they say a historian. I go, don't. Get a real job. Wait till you retire and then faff about with that. Uh, right, Zach. So first up, we, I think we need to have a kids category, don't we? That's that's only fair. Um, so in the kids category, no in competition. Place, James. <laughs> I was waiting for that burn to come. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I wasn't even going to be that mean for once. I felt I gave James enough of a bash. No, I knew New it wouldn't, do, wouldn't be you, Zach. It'd be uh, someone else. I just knew someone it was coming. Bastard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we always say from the mouth of babes and, and all of that, the kind of the wisdom, wouldn't it just be lovely if we could get over ourselves and not have war? So Sophie absolutely sweeps to victory in the kids' category. Well done, Sophie. And... Really confident pitch as well. You you nailed it. Just a shame about Daddy's handwriting. Yeah, write it yourself <laughs> next time. Then in the adults category, uh, this is going to surprise people just a, a little bit. So in third, Kit's Rock's Rift. What a pitch that was. In second, I'm going to go Lockie and Waterloo. It pains me to say it, but I'm I'm not going to put Napoleon being a twat. As, as number one, because the winner is just the utterly disgusting shitstorm that is the end of World War One. Clive's the winner. Yay! Oh, look at him trying to look oh. polite and contrite. And when really inside, he's dying of smuggery. Look at him. <laughs> Can we arrange for homes to be away more often? Yeah. <laughs> you have an acceptance speech planned, darling. I didn't because I I just didn't expect it. So I'm just flattered. I'd like to thank my agents and everybody else who's <laughs> assisted me in this. So Clive, is the check in the post, yeah? Absolutely, Zach. 
<laughs> loving it guys well done considering uh most of us were hanging out of our asses until half an hour before this program started well done and getting some pictures together what's the next one the greatest vehicle vehicle, yeah. vehicle yeah that's going to be a right nerd fest boney's got to be around for that one right really mean and make boney judge that one so that he can't put in a pitch for what he thinks is best I think you should be even meaner and find out some sort of... And planes. You say yeah. it has to be a land vehicle. Yeah, no, that's like we can find some sort of definition of the word vehicle and exclude anything airborne just to mess with him. That would be quite... What about, what about boats for poor old Chris? Yeah, we've got to have boats. I, I can, oh, I can see have boats every week, Chris. I, I consider <laughs> um, risotto to be a good flavour vehicle. Does that count? No, uh, not after your all pubs as the greatest um, building it does. You've pushed your luck far enough already. Right, I am looking up. That, I'll win with toast. Ooh, yes. hello. A vehicle for Marmite. Mm. <laughs> right, <laughs> this is the definition of vehicle we are using. A thing used for transporting people or goods, especially on land. Oh, poor. It doesn't say exclusively on land. <clears throat> okay. So pl- if you want to if you want to piss away a night of your life prepping a boat, Chris, go for it. I think Bobes is back. It says especially, but it has to be used for transporting people or goods. So toast is out as is risotto. <laughs> <laughs> also out. What about Cayman Island special purpose vehicles used in catastrophe funds and other reinsurance transactions? <laughs> well, well, it stuns me that Clive attracts nearly a thousand people to every talk he does on reinsurance. It's mad. It's obviously his compelling personality because it definitely isn't the subject matter, is it? It's his accents. It's because it's the accent. He does it all in fake comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and wearing lycra. Yeah. Right. Anyway, yeah. we're buggering off. We will see you next time. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 